Gridbox Media Programming is brought to you by... Introducing the redesigned CatholicSingles.com, featuring new ways that put the spotlight on the person and their faith, not just a profile picture. For the past 20 years, faithful Catholics have used CatholicSingles.com, and the reimagined CatholicSingles.com website is ready to help single Catholics take the next step in sharing meaningful relationships with other faithful Catholics. Remember, CatholicSingles.com, for faith, fellowship, and love. Hello, this is international Catholic singer Anna Nuzzo, inviting you to join me and Father Dan Cambra of the Marian Fathers on a select international tour's Divine Mercy pilgrimage to Poland and the Czech Republic. It takes place in September of 2019, and we would love for you to join us. For more information, go to my website, AnnaNuzzo.com. Thank you, and God bless. Welcome to John Allen's The Future Church. I'm Father Dwight Longenecker. John Allen, the veteran Vatican journalist, wrote The Future Church in 2009. So we're already 10 years into John Allen's predicted future. So it's a very good time to look back over his book and see what he predicted for the church of the 21st century and see how we're doing so far. In the introduction, I explained that John's point is to bring out 10 underlying trends in the world politics, world demographics, world religion, theology, and so forth, which are changing the world and are therefore going to change the Catholic Church. With his book, we can begin to get a glimpse of what the Holy Spirit is doing and what the church of the 21st century will look like. And we can guarantee that it's going to look like nothing uh, that we've known so far, and it's going to be very different. In the first episode, we therefore looked at that first of those underlying trends, which is world church. We went through and looked at lots of statistics, but basically the bottom line is the Catholic Church is already predominantly the church of the South, the church of the developing world, of Africa, Asia, the Far East, and Latin America. Already the Catholics in the developing world far outnumber the Catholics in Europe and North America. So in this second chapter, John Allen looks at a trend which he calls evangelical Catholicism. Remember, John is writing in 2009 at the climax of Pope Benedict XVI's papacy and a few years before Pope Francis is elected. Therefore, the things that he says in this chapter are one of the most interesting uh, aspects of the book because we see how much perceptions, at least, have changed. I I don't think the reality has changed very much, but the perceptions of that reality Uh, is something which has changed uh, considerably. So what does John mean by evangelical Catholicism? Essentially, he means a Catholicism which has a clearer theological and Christological center, a a clearer identity and an intentional aspect to it, a smaller, more reduced and concentrated church. Benedict XVI himself predicted this, that many of the cultural institutions and many of the assumed establishment privileges of the Catholic Church in Europe would disappear and the church would become leaner and smaller, more committed and more intentional. And this is what John Allen sees as evangelical Catholicism. He says this at the opening of the chapter. 
Catholicism has gone from being a culture-shaping majority to perceiving itself as an embattled cultural minority, and is responding as embattled minorities always do, with a politics of identity based on reaffirming traditional beliefs and practices, sharpening the borders between itself and the surrounding culture. It's akin to the response of ancient Judaism when faced with the challenge of maintaining its identity in the diaspora, building a fence around the law. And so this stronger Catholic identity is what John Allen is calling evangelical Catholicism. He calls it that because it has a kind of evangelical fervor to it and a zeal to it, which is driving the whole movement forward. What are some of the signs? He says Catholic liturgies are becoming steadily more traditional, with a preference for Roman-sounding phrases and older practices such as taking communion on the tongue rather than in the hand. He says Catholic universities, hospitals, and charitable organizations are under strong pressure to show that they haven't gone secular. He says priests and brothers and nuns are under scrutiny for alleged deviations from the traditional ways of life. And also Pope Benedict XVI's decision to revive the old Latin Mass and his broader insistence on reading the Second Vatican Council in continuity with earlier layers of Catholic tradition aims at projecting a more classical sense of Catholic identity. Well, that's certainly how it looked in 2009 when the book was written. After Pope Francis comes along, however, a lot of those markers seem to have kind of drifted away into a Catholic Church, which now, at least in Europe and North America, seems to be perceived as much more liberal. John Allen goes through and continues to look in more depth, therefore, at the problems in the church which brought about what he suggests is evangelical Catholicism. He says it's a result of secularism in society and secularism in the church. He distinguishes three particular strands within church tradition, three tribes, if you like, mainline liberalism, evangelicalism, and Pentecostalism. To put the differences into a soundbite, he writes, mainline liberals want to reach a detente with modernity, evangelicals want to convert it, and Pentecostals want to set it on fire. So what are the defining characteristics of this evangelical Catholicism, which he discerns? He says, first of all, there seems to be a clear embrace of traditional Catholic thought, speech, and practice, a kind of traditionalism, which is there and coming forward in the church. Eagerness to proclaim one's Catholic identity to the world, emphasizing its implications for culture, society, and politics, and faith as a matter of personal choice rather than cultural inheritance. It's interesting now, 10 years on, to see that this trend is certainly there, but it seems to become more extreme. And indeed, those who would go for more traditional practices, some of them are retreating into more and more extreme forms of traditionalism in order to mark out their identity, not only from the world, but from what they see as a secularized and a liberal Catholicism, which seems to be on the rise at the moment, which they don't like one little bit. And while it's tempting, John Allen says, to see this all as conservative, and that's not entirely wrong, the impulse has a conservative feel, but it's not really conservative in as much as it's a reaction against modernity and a reaction against secularism. It's not it cannot possibly reproduce some of the church of the 1950s or or the church of the 1940s or whatever. 
but instead it's cherry picking elements from the tradition and recreating a new kind of Catholicism, evangelical Catholicism in the world today, which is fully 21st century. It is, if you like, wearing the clothes of traditional Catholicism and giving the outward appearance of traditional Catholicism, whereas in many ways it's actually very different from traditional Catholicism because of this emphasis on personal commitment and individual choice. The conservatism if it was true conservatism, would be a swing back to cultural Catholicism with all of its implications of the cultural baggage of being Irish or Polish or Italian. All of that is gone. But what we're seeing instead in this traditional movement of evangelical Catholicism is a a dressing up, if you like, of their Catholicism and uh, adopting the devotions and the customs uh, and the mannerisms and the liturgies of the past in order to give themselves a place um, to stand and a place to retreat to in the modern world. Well, this evangelical Catholicism, John Allen sums up, is in one sense a stepchild of secularization. It is a conscious and carefully crafted strategy to resist the perceived evils of secularization. He quotes Benedict XVI's vision of Christianity in the secular West as being a creative minority. Um, a small group which is going to um, be influential despite their small size because of their intensity of belief and the zeal of their commitment. So how did this secularization come about? Uh, John Allen goes on to explain that in Europe and in the North North America, secularism has really swept across after the Second World War and devastated the Catholic Church. He gives some statistics. The crisis of faith in Europe is real. Here is the results of a 2002 Pew Global Attitudes project. People were asked around the world to say how important religion was to them. And the following are the percentages in various nations. These are the nations who answered it was very important. How many in Indonesia said that religion was very important? 95%. Nigeria, 92%. India, 92%. Philippines, 88%. Guatemala, 80%. United States, 59%. Poland, 36%. And then we get to Europe. Great Britain, 33%. Italy, 27%. Germany, 21%. Russia, 14%. France, 11%. Czech Republic, 11%. Therefore, the faith in Europe has taken a, a huge hit. He quotes scholar David Voaz of the University of Manchester in England. He reports that the cultural deck in Great Britain today is decisively stacked against religion. Survey data reveal that two religious parents stand only a 47% chance of raising a religious child. One religious parent has half that prospect, 24%, and the odds that a child of two parents who don't attend services and aren't affiliated with a religion will turn out to be religious are slightly over 3%. In other words, statistically insignificant. And Voss uh, draws the obvious conclusion, in Britain, institutional religion now has a half-life of one generation, to borrow the terminology of radioactive decay. What does this secularization look like? What did the secular population of Europe actually hold to when it comes to faith of any kind? Well, first of all, there is a category called believing without belonging. 
These are people who say they were spiritual but not religious, people who kind of have a vague belief in God and spirits and maybe angels or good thoughts or negativity, whatever, a kind of vague spirituality. Now, they believe in God. They're not atheists, uh, but they, they have no particular religion. And if there is a category of believing without belonging, there is also a category of belonging without believing. These are people who would identify as Catholic or Orthodox because they're Polish or because they're Ukrainian or because they're German or because they're Bavarian, uh, but they have no real belief, no real practice of any faith, but they still have a kind of general commitment to, to their religion as part of their family and their cultural background. So these are the ones who are belonging but not believing. And then there's also those who belong to what's called vicarious religion, people who think that while they don't believe it's still a good thing to have religion in society, the kind of people who attended Lady Diana's funeral or, or people who believe that it's great that the royal family have their weddings in, in the cathedral and that the, and the Church of England continues on, even though they never go, and people who think that therefore religion and spirituality has a role to play in society. It, it contributes something morally, but it's not really something which they would actually actually practice themselves. This is vicarious religion. And the last category of secularism in its interface with religion itself is called patchwork religion or a syncretism for Catholics, cafeteria Catholicism, where people pick and choose what they want to believe from different traditions. So maybe a little bit of yoga and Hindu meditation, and, and then perhaps uh, they go to an evangelical Bible study, uh, and they go to Mass once in a while, or at least have their children baptized. And then they also perhaps read some New Age books and watch some TV programs about ghosts and aliens and, and supernatural beings. And it all sort of mixes up in a kind of mishmash of pick-and-mix religion, which John Allen calls a patchwork religion. These are really aspects of secularism, which have hit Catholicism hard, uh, hit it really hard. And uh, he therefore goes through and says, what does it look like in, in Europe um, today? He And consider these four historically Catholic European nations, France, Belgium, Austria, and Hungary. According to 2007 data, only 40.5% of the French, 39% of Belgians, 63% of Austrians, and 45% of Hungarians today call themselves Catholic. In three of the four, Catholics are now a minority, and the trend is sharply downward in Austria as well. Now, these statistics, remember, come from 2007, 12 years ago, and so the numbers are continuing to decline in Europe. Vocations to the priesthood offer another measure. In 1950, Europe had 250,000 priests. By the turn of the century, the two, year 2000, the number had dropped to about 200,000, nearly 50,000 fewer. In 2004, the total was down even further, and now, some 15 years later, the numbers of priests in Europe are plummeting even further. The bishops there are worried, of course, and are beginning, uh, as we're doing in North America, to bring more and more priests in from the developing world, from India, from Africa, from Latin America, in order to fill the gap, and therefore beginning the process of the transformation of the Catholic Church in Europe and North America by the immigration of these priests and other Catholics. Even in Italy, uh, where faith and practice remain relatively high, close inspection reveals underlying weakness. Allen writes, in 2003, a study of youth in Rome was published, and 
and the results do not paint a rosy picture. While solid majorities believe in God, their concept of divinity has little to do with Christian revelation. Some saw God as a ray of light or force of nature, an abstract idea such as love, and most of them expressed hostility to the institutional church and said things like, I'm sure of one thing one young man said, if I needed something, I wouldn't go to a Catholic priest. How did all this come about? Well, there are two exactly opposite viewpoints. The liberals would say this great decline happened because the reforms of the Second Vatican Council weren't carried out, they weren't radical enough, and we need more of the Second Vatican Council reforms in order to make the church relevant for the modern age. The traditionalists would come back and say, no, it's the reforms of the Second Vatican Council which have caused this disastrous decline. And that's the problem, that it has all been caused by the Second Vatican Council. Well, this is why John Allen says that the rise of evangelical Catholicism is a natural result of this secularization. And John Allen gives some clear examples of this rise of evangelical Catholicism, which is an answer to the secularism and the decline of the church. He goes through with detail and talks about the liturgy wars. In the early part of the 21st century, the church began to take a swing back towards a more traditional understanding of the liturgy. In March 2001, the Vatican issued a set of principles for translation of the liturgy called Liturgiam Authenticam, and this amounted to a sweeping rejection of something called dynamic equivalency. The dynamic equivalency approach to translation was when translating the Bible or the ancient texts of the liturgy to use modern language which approaches the meaning of the ancient texts, but isn't actually a, a literal word-for-word translation. In 2001, the Vatican rejected that and went for more traditional understanding, a more literal translation of the scriptures and the liturgical texts, so that not only would there be more authenticity, but there would also be a more traditional tone to the language. And then, of course, the liberalization of the permissions for the celebration of the Tridentine Rite was also a a move back towards a more traditional approach to the liturgy. A second example that Alan gives is in Catholic education. Again, in the first 10 years of the 21st century, Catholic colleges were encouraged to be clearer about their Catholic identity, to affirm their Catholic identity. A test of orthodoxy in teaching began to go around and and, uh, a swing back towards clear Catholic teaching and clear Catholic identity took place. The third aspect was priestly identity. There was more of a a distinction being drawn between the clergy and the laity. For instance, the laity were not allowed to cleanse the sacred vessels in in the Eucharist. And there was a clearer distinction between the brothers and the sisters who were religious and the priests who were religious. And more of a swing back to purify and cleanse the seminaries of the homosexual and liberal elements and reassert a strong and dominant clerical culture. Fourth marker of this evangelical Catholicism was increased clarity on the area of the uniqueness of Catholicism and the uniqueness of Christ as Savior. So, Dominus Jesu was a document in 2000, which Benedict XVI, then Cardinal Ratzinger, put forward, which asserted clearly that Jesus is the only way of salvation. And and Benedict XVI's first book in 2007, Jesus of Nazareth, defended the historical reliability of the Gospels and argued that Jesus is presented as God incarnate. So, writing in 2009, John Allen goes on to an interesting analysis asking, what's going to happen to Catholic liberalism? 
Will it die out because of this surge of evangelical Catholicism? And John Allen says, first of all, in North America, certainly, and in Europe, liberal Catholicism is not on its last legs. Indeed, many people would say that the election of Pope Francis has given it a new surge of life, and exactly the opposite is happening in the church right now. Instead of a surge of evangelical Catholicism, we're now seeing a sudden surge again of Catholic liberalism, and that all of the markers that John Allen put down about the liturgical reform of the reform, about increased um, priestly identity and the colleges becoming more Catholic in their identity and so forth, that all these things have quietly gone away and retreated the new upsurge of Catholic liberalism. And that Catholic liberalism, unlike John's prediction, is not actually fading out, but it's moving into an even stronger position uh, than it ever has before. Well, we will see what happens as the 21st century unfolds. Again, I'm not sure that these distinctions between evangelical Catholicism and Catholic liberalism really have much meaning outside of Europe and North America. They still make sense in Europe and North America because of our tradition and our philosophical background. But they increasingly don't make sense with this rise of the church in the developing world because the church in the developing world, as we saw in the last chapter, is in many ways theologically and morally conservative, and yet in other ways is liturgically, spiritually, and socially more liberal and more open-ended and more flexible in ways that our categories of discussion just really don't match up with. And the church in the developing world, therefore, is one which we can't fit into our categories of thought, which are so clear for us in North America and in Europe. So therefore, we have to think outside the box and see what God is doing with the church in the developing world and how that's going to influence the church in our world today. Now, in the second half of this podcast, John Allen goes through and talks about what is actually going to happen. He looks at four categories, near certain consequences, probable consequences, possible consequences, and long-shot consequences. And it's in this fuller podcast that you will be able to hear all of these projections for the future. Now, this full-length version of the podcast is available at my blog, DwightLongenecker.com, and it is behind the paywall. That's because I ask people to help with the expenses of running my blog. I don't have third-party ads of any kind on the blog, but there are expenses associated with producing the blog and the podcasts, and so my donor subscribers at five different levels are able to help with those expenses. If you'd like to listen to the full-length version, you can uh, go to DwightLongenecker.com and click on subscribe. Learn what it means to be a donor subscriber, the various benefits that you'll receive, and how you can help to promote the work that I'm doing in the new media. Thank you very much for listening to this abridged version. Again, if you'd like to go to my blog, check out donor subscriber also look at my books read my regular blog posts free of charge and be in touch breadbox media programming is brought to you by jack kane ford find your next ford tough vehicle at kaneford.com